Hello, this is John San Juan of the Hush Drops, and you are listening to the Famous Cat Chronicle. Hi, welcome back to the Famous Cat Chronicle. I'm sure some of you out there are saying, wait, you guys are still a podcast? Yes, 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 we are still a podcast. But with coronavirus pandemic coming around and the fact that I've been busy as a parent, all sorts of things kind of just took a lot of wind out of my sail. But I have this new burst of energy and I finally want to do right by the guest on today's podcast. This is the Legendary Lost episode number two, the Band being chronicled is Chicago's very own Hush Drops. The Hush Drops are a Chicago-based trio starring John San Juan on guitar, Joe Camarillo on drums, and Jim Shapiro on bass. Now, some of those names you might have heard before. Joe Camarillo is currently seen drumming with the Waco Brothers and NRBQ. Jim Shapiro you might know from being the drummer in Veruca Salt. And John San Juan has been a part of Material Issue. He's been a part of Ness. He's been a part of Liam Hayes' band, Kevin Tiesta's Red Terror. It sounds like a supergroup, but believe it or not, Joe Camarillo told me once that a lot of his other gigs that he's gotten have come on the strength of the reputation of the Hush Drops. The man speaking to me today is John San Juan. Now, folks, John San Juan has been part of bands since the late 80s. The Hush Drops have been together as a band since 1990. The music they put out is just incredible. I first got to hear them from their cover of a Raspberry song. It's one of those defining moments. You listen to it, you're like, oh my God, these guys are amazing. But back then, maybe because I wasn't looking hard enough, I did not know of the Hush Drops until years and years later, Material Reissue, the Material Issue reunion band to celebrate the re-release of International Pop Overthrow. Say that five times fast, I dare you. The Hush Drops opened up their New Year's Eve gig. I guess that would be 20, 2011. I saw them for the first time was just floored, realized that for December of 2012, I wanted to have a benefit concert, and I already knew the first two bands I was going to have, The Safes and The Difference, and with any luck, you'll be hearing both of them as guests on this podcast as well. But the third band, I wanted to ask Hush Drops if they wanted to be on the, on the, the bill contacted John San Juan. Within 30 seconds of me asking him, he said, without a doubt, yes, we'll do the concert. And so from that point on, I started being a huge fan of them as a band and slowly, little by little, getting more and more of their recordings and watching them, releasing them in real time. I just have been nothing short of highly impressed and remain a huge fan of everything the Hush Drops have put out. With any luck, by listening to this podcast, you will as well. Like I said, the reason it's been such a daunting process 
John and I sat down for about five hours worth of interview material, and it gave me a lot to choose from, but it also was such a huge amount that it was sometimes daunting to me. How am I going to make this into a workable podcast? So here's what I am going to do just to give you guys a little bit of a taste. Like I said, not only is John San Juan part of Hush Drops, he's also been part of Material Issue in a touring capacity. He's been part of Ness, which is the spinoff band from wonderful Chicago band called Fig Dish. He's been part of Kevin Tiesta's Red Terror, and John San Juan had a, a guest role on the second Triple Fast Action album. John has been a member of the Webb Brothers. He has been part of Liam Hayes' touring band. The man's resume is so fat. The actual profile of the Hush Drops is a long enough episode that I'm breaking it into two parts. This episode you're listening to is the first part. But then I'm going to have the mini-episodes for the various spin-off projects that John has been a part of. And it's fascinating. And he's a wonderful person to listen to tell rock and roll stories, listen to his insights and what he's seen career-wise. It's totally worth listening to. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I introduce to you Jean San Juan, The Hush Drops. The first thing I want to do before we jump into the interview propers i want to retell a funny funny story that uh involves actually both of us i had asked the hush drops to be the band on my benefit concert and the concert went well but there was a gentleman at the show that was very interesting so months later i asked you um you're originally from uh new orleans so i ask you do you have a brother and you say you're looking at me like I'm like I just grew a third head, and you said yeah, and I said was he at the concert? And you're looking at me even weirder. You say no, and I said good, because there was a guy at the Triple B benefit show who identified himself as your brother, and he was acting eccentrically. I'll put it that way. Right. Next. So his story checks out certainly. Well, and yeah. so it it very well could have been. And so during the course of the concert. I'm giving him a little bit of slack. And I say, and he looking over me and he had dental, let me try that again, dental bridge work. And every once in a while he would look over and he would like, like, you know how you can manipulate it with your tongue and and make your teeth stick out and stuff. And it was very- That's kind of incredible. It was very, very (laughs) weird and strange. But since he had identified himself as your brother, I cut him a long line of slack. And so I told this to you months later and you just started laughing and laughing. And then Joe Camarillo, the drummer for Hush Traps, said, and see if you remember this story. I don't know who it is, but he said there was a rock star. Um, star, I guess, is kind of more, you know, a rock performer who mm. said, I am now going to play guitar with my teeth. And then he went and took out his, his dental bridgework and started using it as a oh, pick. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I don't remember this at all, but that's, that's incredible. <laughs> but it was so funny. It's like you're looking at me like, why are you asking me about my brother? You know, I didn't. I had no idea. Right, seemingly worlds colliding. Yeah. Yeah, and then when you said that, no, he had not been at that concert. I'm like, oh, good. That brings a load off my mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was the first music you heard that lit you up? That you said, oh my god, this is amazing. That moment where the light bulb went off and said, music is more than just 
you know, something to listen to in the background. What was the first one? Do you remember? And how old were you? You know, it was probably my parents' records um, and the radio, and that would have been, you know, very early 1970s. I remember things like Spill the Wine and Walk on the Wild Side and I'll Take You There and... Things like that being on the radio. Elton John probably had a hundred hits. Got America. That sort of early seventies AM ambience, the car radio. The drag of the line, the I can help, all of that. I'd asked for I got the Lou Reed record with Walk on the Wild Side. She says, Hey babe. Take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls go do 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 And brought that to kindergarten for show and tell. And I don't, the teacher didn't like it, called my parents. Um, but from there, it was, you know, probably like Elton John's greatest hits. And my dad took me to see the Rock of the Westies tour at Chicago Stadium when I was six. Oh, my God. And it was straight into full-on Beatlemania from there because they were still, at that time, I think there was a lot of denial among their fans from the 60s. It was like they wanted mom and dad to get back together. So there was just this really uh, constant ambient Beatlemania. And they were, so they were, they were still ubiquitous. I mean, now you would think of something that's five or six years old as being almost sort of freshly passe, and they somehow managed to be immune to that. So they were they were everywhere, and and that was maybe the great joy of that discovery in early childhood was that you would just you wouldn't be getting the records in sequence, and they just becoming this like you know okay well this is this this is the white album, and then you discover Revolver and. So they really seemed even broader than I think they are in, in mm -hmm. actual historical fact. They just seemed kind of crazy because you'd go from all of these things and not really knowing what sequence they had arrived in. And I think it contributed to making them seem very fascinating to a, a young child. Okay. When did you start playing guitar? And there's an interesting side note to that. The way you play guitar just fascinates me and the way you explained how you essentially taught yourself how to play guitar how old were you when you first started playing guitar i started trying when i was probably nine or ten thereabouts and just sort of because there were you know, just again a thing about that era it just seemed like there were instruments everywhere and you'd find an instrument and I would just sort of tune it until it sounded like a chord and move my pointer finger up and down or my thumb or whatever. And enough so that my parents got me a guitar for my 11th birthday. And like a six string? You got me an electric, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, okay. Um, proper guitar. And so then I, you know, went into the songbook and learned chords and things yeah. like that. But to reference what you're saying, I didn't realize at the time that. 
And I was playing a right-handed guitar in a left-handed position, you know, strumming with my left and chording with my right. And by the time somebody would have said something, which would have probably been a week or two into it, like, oh, you're, you know, look, you're playing that upside down. To my mind, you know, well, look, I've already got this vast week's worth of knowledge here. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't possibly, would have never occurred to me to start over again. You know, that I have children of my own, that's a very... I, I see a lot of that point of view in children. It's just, uh, you know, oh my God, you're pouring the milk wrong. No, I'm not. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, out of that childlike stubbornness and determination evolved um, a style. I guess just to paint a visual picture for people out there who might not have seen you guys in concert, John is a left-handed guitarist. What that means is most people will have the guitar neck on their left hand and strum with the right. I'm a right-handed guitarist, that's the way I play. You do it reversed, where you have the guitar neck in your right hand and you strum with your left. Now, there's two ways of being a left-handed guitarist. The way I play guitar, looking at the strings from top to bottom, lowest to highest, it goes E, A, D, G, B, E, low E on top. The way Paul McCartney, as a left-handed guitarist, plays it is he has his guitar or bass in his hand, and the lowest string is still on top, but the guitar is strung differently. Like, I would not be able to play the same guitar that Paul McCartney plays. You, on the other hand, being left-handed, you have it tuned where the lowest string is on the bottom. Right, so just using right-handed guitars which is so. phenomenal because it you know, let's just say for instance you were playing a, a show with phil and Gotti, like a beatles tribute show or something and he handed you his guitar you would be able to play it whereas paul mccartney the beatle <laughs> would not right. be able to play for all of his t- enormous talents yeah <laughs> would not yeah. be able to comfortably play that guitar because it's strung to him reverse of what he's used to i think Jimi hendrix played with a left-handed strung guitar too right i think that's correct yeah but you and there's actually there's albert king maybe and i think there's a couple of people who i've because people will always tell you like oh you know you know who else does that and there's maybe maybe a couple of blues musicians yeah um Again, sort of necessity, mother of invention. But the fact that you taught yourself all those chords, like I've done it myself, you'll have Hal Leonard where he'll give you the little grid of put your fingers here. You taught yourself those chords except with your other hand, and that's phenomenal. It's like, oh, my God, he, you're, you're teaching yourself like the Beatles songbook, you told me. Right, yeah. Um, with the same chord formation except you're doing it and that For just... some reason, the grid looked because, again, being ignorant of the conventions. Yeah, of the conventions, the grid looked like okay. Well, that's that's you know, it looked perfectly normal, and, and it is. And I suppose coming from either point of view, yeah, that's a D chord. The other thing that's fascinating about the way you play guitar is instead of a lot of down strums, you have a lot of up strums, which I think is fascinating too. Oh, right, which is probably the result of hearing music. With the traditional right-handed down strum yeah. and so subconsciously. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Right, replicating. The first note of attack is typically the lowest, yeah. Right. How does 
your mind is trying to make it sound like the kinks or whatever you know <laughs> yeah exactly the other guitarist that I just discovered in the last year who does that is um, V Sonnets of the band. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I know V. And yeah, he is also an upside down guitarist. Exactly. That's right. But he does, he has this amazing 12 string Rickenbacker. And I, I don't know if he has two of them off of it or what, but he plays it the same way, and he's got a muscle, that big 12-string, the same way. Yeah, and he, right, and there is something unusual about his uh, setup. I want to say it's like a 10, he only has 10 right. strings. Right, I think that's correct, I think yeah. the low E's are taken off. And then again, it's one of those things like, well, it works, you know. It, it, oh, God, yeah. he, they're monsters alive. They, they just recently... As part of the Safe's Day Before Thanksgiving concert, yeah, they were part of it, and they just smoked. I'd, I'd never seen them. I, I'd seen V play with artists formerly known as Vince. I think seeing that it was just wow. It just blew me away. You know, makes you want to get more and more and more on it. And with some of these CDs that are like out of print for so many years, it's hard to get your hands. Oh on sure, it, yeah. Know? I mean, that, I, we, I ran into that with some of your back catalog, and I said, listen, I'm not trying to be a mooch, but I'd love to hear these songs, but I don't know how to get all Oh, no, there's easily. a lot of things that, yeah, fell in the cracks between the physical era and the streaming era. Yeah. And, you know, if they're private press, it's not like, yeah, you know, it's not like you're, well, we better go back and reprint this thing from our old band, you know. And it makes sense. I mean, at, at a certain independent level, the dollars and cents of it is, let's just say, for instance, that a thousand copies of album X was printed back when it was released. Well, now the band has no longer been playing except maybe a couple times a year, and they've sold out of those thousands. Does it make sense to press up another thousand if it took this long to press to, to sell the thousand? Oh, right, yeah. And, that, and, and as much as you want to say art is pure it should always be available the economic reality is are are we going to be active enough of a band to justify repressing this album that's gone out of print well and it's also it's if you record something and then 20 years later are considering its fate if it's something that's out of print there's part of you that's just like well you know that that's old data and you're doing whatever's current to you now so there's a sense that like well it existed and and there I don't know there's something about that that appeals to me that it's almost like it makes it a little more ephemeral or yeah. like flash paper like if you saw it and you know and I see this a lot in my own collecting endeavors, things on the secondary market that are uh, sort of almost prohibitively priced now because yeah. you're lucky to find find them in any quantity. Yeah, know? oh yeah, totally. But And then once in a while when you find them, it's just that amazing rush that you get, you know, essentially buried treasure that's been priced incorrectly by, oh, yeah. by a record store clerk who doesn't know the true value of it. And I think, um, you know, it's funny, I think you, you and I have, obviously have a shared interest in collecting and i think that <laughs> other think? people who other people who do this as well i think that is sort of a shared view that yeah it's you have the ability to go on discogs or ebay and pay current market value but that's nowhere near as thrilling as sort of finding it in the wild, not, you know, sort of behind glass, so to speak. Right. That's one thing that even I, I as a collector, as all of my collectible records, I buy them not because they're collectible. I buy them because that's my player copy. You oh, know, like, yeah. Like I have a copy of 
spilt milk on green vinyl and people say oh you should keep that thing and shrink I'm like no it's my player copy oh yeah it's a record yeah right i mean it's it's wonderful that it's green vinyl and it's gonna appreciate in value is that gonna stop me from playing it no is it gonna make me treat it a little more gently yeah probably <laughs> Oh sure. <laughs> Am I, yeah. if, if if my son magically decided he wanted to get into vinyl, would I let him play that copy of it? No, I'd say, oh, here's the CD. You know, I have a second copy of the CD. Can I, or I'll make digital files of it. Going back to, I guess your histories. You grew up in New Orleans. You've learned how to play guitar. At some point, you came to Chicago. When was that that you came to Chicago? And when did you become part of the Chicago music scene? I guess. What bring me through that? Well, um, I played in jazz band in high school, and there were people, I had friends, who were sort of also beginners, which is, I mean, I think there's something optimal about that, where you're all kind of at the same level of learning and exploring and amateurism, I guess. It's probably the freest you'll ever be as a as a musician, but nothing, you know, nothing remotely professional or even semi-professional, and I came up to Chicago when I was about 17 and a half. You know, I started college then, and... Where'd you go to college? I went to Columbia College. Okay, right on. I went and, there for a little. And suddenly, like, oh, everyone's my age, and they're all, you know, seemingly everyone's a musician. You know, whatever you find, you find your, you find open water, and I found sort of friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing ended up playing in a band with some friends at Columbia did that for probably a year and a half what year is this like roughly this is like, like 88 89 okay and is there any history of that band like do they have a name is there any recorded stuff it was a band called the glory hounds and the bass player singer really the band leader dave trumfio who was oh yeah far more experienced than that. any of us you know he worked in a recording studio and just you know, had a real aptitude for recordings. Was, was, you know, his home recordings just had a certain art to them that no one else's did. You are the plastic girl, the You are the plastic girl. Oh, From the Glory Hounds. That's an unreleased version of a song of theirs called Pepsi Addicts. You know, I had learned a lot from, you know, this is my first studio experience, a lot of my first gig experience. And, you know, I can't remember what the fracture was, but I think I had it in my mind. Well, I, I guess I felt that I was ready to be the boss in some way, that I was ready to branch out, even though I'd never really written anything or never led a band. Um, but... Again, it's that sort of philosophy. Is that your phone or mine? This that uh, that was kind of cool. Uh, just to just to <laughs> tell people what's going on here, I have the two microphones on my coffee table. So every time the coffee table takes a tap or a kick, it has this really cool sound. So a telephone started ringing it, and it made this really cool. Oh, you're wearing the headphones, so yeah, you're getting the... I, yeah. I can hear, yeah. It's uh, so funny. Every little percussive <laughs> thing is unfortunately being caught by... No, no, I've, I've been really uh, cautious, I guess. No, and, uh, and yeah. thank you for it, yeah, but um, it's going to add to the character. 
But uh, anyway, yeah, right. Maybe, maybe right. Ambient music. Yeah. Uh, um, it was going boo boo. <laughs> the vibrations. Um, well, you know, it's funny now. Your phone will just it will say spam. I don't know if your phone does this as well, but uh, or it'll just come up like like such and such number in Elmhurst. I'm like, and you think, oh god, it might be something important. And then you pick it up. Hi, we, somebody tried to sell my daughter insurance today, and I was just furious. I'm like, how did you get this number, and why are you trying to pimp my daughter off her insurance? She, she didn't buy the insurance, did no. she? No. But she obviously, <laughs> in, you know, gave out this number, and it's like, who are you? And and let me, you know, but whatever. Oh god, no, yeah, I mean you're yeah, you're on the grid. It's, it's <laughs> that's what it is, I guess. But uh, yes, yeah, so so glory hounds. Yes, yeah, so glory hounds. Um, Dave Trumpio, which is actually the yeah. second podcast in a row that the Trumpios have been mentioned. I mean, no, they got around, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, Dave, really. certainly. Um, and I, I still see Dave. Um, in King Size Studios. Yeah. Yeah, I saw him at a wedding in L.A. a couple years ago. Got a beautiful family. And, and this all from, you know, playing in his, got his poor parents. But yeah, we rehearsed in their basement a couple times a week for a year and a half. And now that I know that I have, I have children of my own, I've realize what a selfless act of parenting that is just to you know have amps and drums down in the basement and just say oh, you know what we're, we told them they could play on every wednesday or whatever thanks to them yeah we had a yeah a couple of years of you know playing a lot and recording a lot and was there anything that was released from that band yeah i know we released a cassette okay and as was the style at the time. Right, which I guess we recorded when I was 18. And I joined the band when I was 18, and I think that, I don't know if you remember, that Columbia College had a record label. Yeah, and... And that was a class. Yeah, it was a class that... <laughs> I um, want to say, wasn't one of the material issue releases on... Shockingly, and, no. Because I thought they were well, like one of the bands that inspired all that, you know, with Big Block and everything. Right. No. No, so, you know what it was? It was Ralph Colbert. That's what it was. That's correct. So I joined right when Amp was putting out the Glory Hounds record. Literally the week I joined, like there was a picture in the Tribune of me and the guys, like, you know, adolescents signing this contract on a <laughs> desk in a classroom. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, I, I remember going to, going to whatever, psychology or Spanish or whatever it is that Friday morning and just... Everybody kind of like, hey man. <laughs> um, the Glory Hounds from nineteen eighty nine. You and me. That was that was a good. It was a good experience, and honestly, on the back of Dave's initiative and enthusiasm and know-how, you know, I was you know playing the Metro when I was eighteen, and you know having these pretty, uh, you know, for me they were uh, just optimal experiences for that that age and that stage of learning how to do what I do, mm -hmm. and I ended up. Again, it's it's hard for me, for me to remember what was, the imperative was to go out on my own, mm -hmm. but but I did. Then there I am, not yet twenty, and no longer in no longer in the, a band, but having the experience of like, okay, well, I guess I'd better start trying to write songs now and come up with a band name and 
you know, choose people for the band. And, um, you know, I don't, not necessarily the strongest work I've ever done, but mm. crucial in its way just yeah. for developing certain skills. And What was the name of that first one where you're the boss? Um, that was the Hush Drops. Oh, it was? That was the, it just had a big sheet of paper with names on it and I was gonna probably say, what? typed. And I think that was the only name that didn't, that was the one that just sort of everyone was like, yeah, I guess I don't hate it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think that a lot of bands are named that way. I'm holding in my hands the Chicago Underground Hits at Large CD, which has not only 92 Degrees and the Websters on it, but also, am I correct in saying, was this the first released music of Hush Traps? Yeah, I think that we had made a cassette that I, we'd made a cassette that didn't really, you know, it wasn't like we were, you know, pimping it super hard or putting it in stores or anything like that but that was yeah. the yeah that was the first thing that you could uh yeah you could go into a shop and buy The debut Hush Drops recording, Snow. I know that was somehow the genesis of a conversation that Steve from 92 Degrees and I had mm -hmm. about self-publishing and the fact that it was, a you know, it was now really that compact disc had become the dominant medium. And like, mm -hmm. well, somehow we had arrived at the idea of, well, yeah, you could have six bands with their single, their two-sided single on mm -hmm. uh, one compact disc. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and those were some of the, yeah, certainly some of the first things I ever, we ever recorded. Mm -hmm. And that was the, I know, the, yeah, the first thing was song Myrtle that I did at the urging, I think, of, of Mike Zelenko, yeah. um, that he had yeah. really... Because I was friends with the guys in Material Issue from college, and um, I hesitate to use the word roadage, but you know, <laughs> just assisted in some very minor capacity mm -hmm. for local shows, tuning guitars and changing strings and things like that. And um, for some reason, Mike was really insistent. Oh yeah, you got it. You know what? I don't know what he. I don't know what he was reacting to, but he was very insistent. Oh, you you got to write songs and you got to record and you know you know you should record where we record and uh, you know what I'll play drums on it. You guys don't have a drummer and uh, <laughs> you know and same thing Ted coming and singing on it. This is the Hushdrops doing Myrtle. So, yeah, someone's always, I feel like there was always an unseen or seen hand mm -hmm. giving some sort of push initially. I might not have ever recorded without that prompt or might not not as soon, you mm -hmm. know. Within, I guess, within a year of that, or even shorter, yeah, I was playing in the first version of The Hush Drops with three friends I think our initial outing was sort of playing in... There was a place called Batteries Not Included, which 
is near where the Pequod's on Clybourne is in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Um, Some amazing pizza, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, still, still my favorite. And that was that was a place that just had a very, very lax. And I, I, I'm euphemizing by saying lax, but uh, you mean better's you, not included. Yeah, that you could just uh, you know I, that I was free to sort of come and go all I wanted when I was 18, 19, 20, um, as were my friends, you know, and I think they knew what was happening, but um, they also knew that we were paying customers, and I just think the laws were maybe a little less rigid then. So it was places like that that we started playing, and I probably had two songs, so play a set and have my two songs in there, and then, you know, eight covers or something. Now, Jim Elson, the lead singer of Material Issue, wasn't he the band booker at Batteries Not Included? Prior, I think by then he was... Oh, yeah, yeah, he was, actually. And now that I'm remembering, we must have booked one of those early shows through him. I remember remember a phone call uh, discussing the other bands or something. Yeah. And I I think at that point he had really had one foot out the door. Like, they were... Material Issue were signing their record deal. And... um, he, you know, you think about the material issues, sort of really aggressive, tireless DIY uh-huh. beginnings yeah. uh, that he couldn't wait to stop booking shows, you know. <laughs> he, um. <laughs> I can't imagine that people like that do it to get rich. They do it for the love of, the, I mean, being a booker at a show, I mean, unless you're, you know, Joe Shanahan at the Metro, I can't imagine that it's hugely, I guess it can be... Um, Remunerate—that's the word I'm looking for. Oh, Make God. a man wealthy, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't know club. how you fall into it. Maybe like a lot of things, like well, just next thing you know, you're doing it. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, the CD that we're talking about—the—it's um, six great bands. It's on Big Block, which was Jim Ellison's label. Uh, well, the Material Issues label for the first few albums of the first few. Oh, there was an EP and a single, I think. Yeah. Uh, what was their uh, involvement with this? I uh, think that oh, because Material Issue were. I mean, God, they. I think Material Issue had two major label albums out by the time we put out this compilation. Yeah, this one's '92. So I think yeah, I think Steve of '92 Degrees had just. I guess. I mean, I'm trying to remember this correctly. I think that he had some, just had asked Jim, you know, can I use the la- the logo and mm-hmm. the name? Because he believed, you know, what's well, got a certain, Can't a see. certain clout, yeah. you know. Which it um, does. I was- <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it was just one of those things like, well, yeah, we're, we're on Mercury. Sure. Go nuts. You, you, know, <laughs> you go stamp it on uh, whatever you want now. I think after Husker Du had signed to SST, that label that they first did, Reflex Records, was still active for other releases, you know, like non-Husker releases after they had, you know, graduated to the next level, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, so who was the personnel of the first iteration of Hush Drops? Well, I... Like, um, who, 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 you were, you were guitarist and primary singer, right? Yeah, I mean... Who um, was bass, who was drums? Um, a bass player named John Hunreiser, okay. who did some backing vocals... And a keyboardist named Scott McNulty, who I had been in Glory Hounds with, and we Mm -hmm. had sort of left together. And now that I think of it, it's partially at his urging. Like, I think he just had some belief, like, well, you'll you'll start writing songs. And uh, some belief in my unproven talent at that point. Very prescient of him, yeah. Um, And a friend of mine, Randall Murphy, 
who I met at Columbia, who was a drummer. And uh, yeah, so it was the, yeah, it was the four of us for those two years that that lineup was active. It's uh, roughly two years. Okay. So this would be 94. You did a song on Brown Banana Superstar EP called Ofe, right? Right, yeah. Is this the next released product? That has to have been, yeah. So that original four-person lineup of Hush Drops, I mean, it just sort of imploded, and you know, I, and at that point, I, I was a, I'm a songwriter, right? right, right <laughs> and, you know, I got to keep going, and you know, all of 22, say a mutual friend or a series of mutual friends really pushed for me and um, Joe Camarillo to play to meet and to play together. Like, oh, you guys should play together. I think everyone else. Anyone, people who knew us both. So what year would this have been? Were you and Joe? Uh, we probably met and played our first shows in very early 1993. Okay. And that was a big leap forward. There was something about the way that we played together. that mm-hmm. was like, oh, this is, you know, it was like fighting a new gear on your car or something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so just everything... Suddenly, I felt like it just has a little more depth and it's got a little more this and a little more that. And we never, um, I mean, my memory is that we we were never able to really keep a third, a consistent third person. <laughs> so, you know, there was a friend of ours playing bass when Joe joined, a friend of ours named Ted, and then within a year... A friend of ours, Josh from Dollface, was filling in mm-hmm. on a sort of, well, I'm filling in, um, but, you know, you guys are going to have to find someone eventually. Yeah, um, okay. And then by the time of the recording in question, also I had a, a friend named Milo who was, I guess he was interning at a recording studio in Morton Grove that was in a basement, and it was, it was a cool studio. I had all these beautiful old instruments um but i think it was not a horribly active studio so <laughs> he was you know I, I was able to work off the clock in there constantly so we were always keep recording talking. keep talking i'm looking i'm looking up some oh sure while we're while we're talking oh sure so we were always recording in there and me and joe were always recording in there and then a friend of ours named Matt Parker joined the band for about a year, and then he's in there recording with us. So we did a number of songs. We did a number of songs, and that's when somebody came looking for one, then like, oh yeah, have this one, or put this one on your thing. Oh, you mean for the, for the compilation? Right, so like, yeah, O'Fay was part of a... I was writing this whole time, so it was a part of a big batch of songs that we recorded, and it was it could have been any number of songs, one of any number of songs, and just seemed like that was the one that that landed on that particular yeah. thing. And there's, I know there's a, a few other songs from that session that ended up on really, really, like, promotional things that are, I wouldn't be able to find now. Um, <laughs> I know there's, um, 
like there's a song called Lime Freeze from then that was on uh, Chicago 500. Right, exactly. Yeah, same session. Both of those tracks, O'Fay and Lime Freeze, Scott Legan, of any number of things at the time, I guess, of Dollface, yeah. and then yeah. subsequently of the Flat Five. And I've um, heard that name, Scott Legan. He's I, just he's on everything. He's, yeah, and he's still he's always on RBQ. Get Oh yeah. He's, oh yeah. He's gotten around, obviously. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Like Casey McDonough as well. Well, yeah. Scott will come down and you know just put some kind of. Put some of his magic on it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember all of us being very unemployed at the time. It was really easy to get people in the studio. Yeah. I have to tell you that my point of entry for getting to know who you guys are was you guys did the cover of Overnight Sensation for Raspberries Preserved, which to this day floors me. I mean, just, I don't know if it's the guy producing it was Matt Allison or Joe's drumming, or just every single thing on there was perfect. It was, it was my introduction to the song itself. I mean, it starts out with the electric piano, starts slowly, and then just explodes into this amazing, echoey, amazing song. Well, I know it sounds funny But I'm not in it for the money, no And I'm not in it for the show. I just want I got into it, it was, I was doing an article on the Webster's. Mark said, hey, here's something else that we did that you might want to listen to. So I listened to their cover, and then the next track after theirs is Hush Drops doing Overnight Sensation, and it just floored me. But I'd never actually seen you guys as a band or anything. It was hard to find information. I thought you guys were defunct at that point that I discovered it. And then 
I remember once being at a bar watching, you know the band The Good? Um, I do not, no. Oh, great Chicago power pop band. I was at one of their shows at Martyrs, or it was a Webster show at Martyrs, and they said, Tom, this is Matt Allison. And he'd had a couple, and I said, man, I just gushed at him about this Hush Drops recording. And I said, the drum sound that you guys achieve on that is just phenomenal and he was taken aback because it's one of those obscure songs well in, in your greater catalog of the hush drops it's one of these relatively obscure songs it was a, a cover of a raspberry song on a, on a compilation cd that maybe people know maybe people don't know but for me it was just a transcendent moment it's like oh my god this is amazing i don't know how you feel personally oh I, I i that was a good that was a lucky day yeah that was a good session i think i was 24 joe was 25 i mean that was also just there's something with the energy of youth you know i think yeah yeah, we did it all in one session, and that's got our friend Jeremy Kerner, a friend of ours from Peoria. He's on bass. The uh-huh. only thing we ever recorded with him. Joe and I sharing the lead vocal, yeah. and then the backing vocals are me, Joe, Jeremy, Scott Legan, and Kevin Jr. Oh, yeah. And Kevin Jr., because he was the, whatever, the recording studio, Matt's, that Matt Atlas was working at, probably Windy City at the time. Oh, it was an Atlas? Okay. Division in Ashland. Okay. That Kevin, because I think they had a rehearsal space there as well or something, Kevin worked the door. Okay. So it was literally like, you know, going to the front office at 10 o'clock, like, hey, Kevin, can you come back and sing with us? And <laughs> so just all of us, you know, 10 minutes around a mic, you know, hit oh, record, man. yeah. <laughs> see how somebody could fall in love with this song so for that you know from the bottom of my music loving heart thank you oh oh no, no, no. it's the song that keeps paying uh, benefits to me so what year did that one come out that was recorded in early 1994 okay and... so around the same time as lime freeze no phase yeah just yeah half a year earlier i guess um i mean that's funny back then at that age half a year seems like a decade you yeah know? just very transition Going, going through so many transitions in young adulthood. I don't think it came... I think it came out a couple years subsequent to that because I feel like it's one of those things where we recorded it and, you know, we knew we liked it. And mm-hmm. as a lot of times, like these sort of very modestly funded tribute projects, you know, the timeline gets really elastic at some point, <laughs> uh, as it did with that. And, you but, know, as, as a matter of whoever the organizer of the CD is scrapping up enough songs and funds to actually press it and release it. 
Oh, sure. And, and I then cross your fingers, hope it reaches an audience. And I don't know how this came to be, but the initial contact was some guy from Australia. Yeah. I don't remember what he did or who he was. But I'm Facebook friends with him. Um, he, he's okay. he's from a label called Zero Hour Records, and they I, I have a lot, some of their other tribute CDs, but it's one of the things he does is he'll say to a bunch of bands, hey, we're trying to put this collection together i have a you know the band the records they did one on that one on cheap trick Dwight. oh Tw- sure that makes sense dwight yeah. twilly the knack he's definitely got a power pop itch the same way somebody like bruce brodine from not lame records and currently oh power pop heaven i forget his current project oh, bruce i apologize <laughs> for the record the website that i'm thinking about it's called pop geek heaven and it's available at www P-O-P-G-E-E-K-H-E-A-V-E-N.com. And it's a wonderful extension of his already existing love of power pop music. Please check it out. Bruce Brodine, the founder of Not Lame Records, is the current proprietor of that website. Okay, so yeah, so right, the Zero Hour, the guy from Australia, had yeah. called me. At, I was living with my aunt at the time. Remember him? calling me a couple times and it was such a big deal to call someone from Australia like that this you know I was like I had no idea what time it was there but he'd mentioned somehow he'd heard about the band and was interested in the hush drops and mentioned the project and so we picked the song and then there was some subsequent conversation with him where he said you know there's a actually you know there's a band called the Rubenus that really want to record that song oh my and god I very dishonestly said, you know what? We just did the session. We just recorded it. Um, (laughs) And we hadn't. But I didn't want to get bumped. Is that how you say it? Rubino? Say it again. Rubinos? I'm saying Rubinos. But it could be. Yeah, I I could be very wrong about this. It's one of those things I've only seen it in print. No, yeah, me too. It's like I used to have one of their EPs. I don't know if I still do. It was produced by Todd Rundgren and Roger Powell. They're one of those power pop bands that bubble unders like the Cognoscenti says, oh, Rubino's, Rubino's, whatever. But yeah, exactly, same thing. No, they've, I mean, no, I feel like our pronunciation dysphoria may (laughs) say, may speak multitudes to their stature. Yeah, exactly. And then now maybe we'll give them a little bit of press. They'll send the thing saying, this is the way you're supposed to pronounce it. Yeah, so if I've been saying it wrong in my... Likewise, and I yeah. apologize too. Uh, <laughs> See, off a name like Off-Broadway is so much easier to say, you know, or Hush Drops or... Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I go through that. I went through something recently, and I still haven't really completed the test, but I'm, where I'm charged with naming something, and uh-huh. my thing is like, oh, God, if this name has to come with any sort of qualifier or explanation, it's... It's already too clever or too, uh, <laughs> um, really, you just have to be able to see it and all right, you know, and I suppose whatever the running gag and, uh, that thing you do about the wonders, yeah, the Oneaters, the Oneaters, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, that's a very cautionary, uh, <laughs> so you have this, I'm going to call it a mini flurry of activity between Ofe and the Raspberry song. Right, gigging all the time. Now, now at this period, if we're running the chronology, there is a a big gap, I guess, between that and what I see as your next work, which was um, volume one, right? Is that true, or is there more? Oh, you know, I mean, in terms of putting records out, absolutely. I was really, you know, and it's hard to reconstruct what you thought about something 25 years ago, but there was something in my mind that 
I guess my belief in what we were doing and the quality that I believed that it had, my feeling was that, you know, well, this is so fantastic that it would belittle it for me to self-publish. You know, looking back now, I think I should have been self-publishing the whole time. It makes it a lot less complicated when it comes to who owns the intellectual property. You don't have to worry because it's all copyright hush drops and it doesn't have any... Well, you know, and also you're just, you're putting yourself out there. But yeah, no, I, I definitely was of the belief for as much as we were gigging and recording, you know, that like, oh, the guy next door is on a record label. You know, why am I... uh surely my surely the ice cream truck will be right along to you know come pick <laughs> us up so yeah i guess in 98 yeah it was been 98 i had inherited a little bit of money and we had at this point had like quite a few masters i said well you know like i should put out a couple we should put out a couple singles um that seemed like a compromise like we're not putting out a rum but look we're putting out a couple singles and that leads us to Summer People, Radio 1990. Also 98, like later in the year, we did right after was Miami Rap Transmission, Joe's song, Amelia Airhead. That's the Hush Drops doing a song called Amelia Airhead, written and sung by Joe Camarillo. And in 2004, the Hush Drops released their first full-length album, Volume 1. Well, Volume 1 was recorded over a period of 1990-2000. That was when the sessions were sort of sporadic. You know, you'd get a few bucks and then go in the studio. Right. Or, you know, get a few bucks and pay off the studio time that you'd... <laughs> not been paying off and so that was that was mixed in 2000 and mastered in you mean uh, volume one volume one right yeah. mixed in 2000 mastered in 2001 and i was freely giving just homemade cd burned copies to people because again it was one of those things like you know i thought well this is it's a classic uh, you know which it is <laughs> um well thank you
Drops debut album, Volume 1, that's the opening song, Divine. Divine is one of those songs that's gone through at least 50 different permutations to arrive at the majestic, elegaic version that you hear that opens up the album. And I apologize if this whole interview has a little bit of a super fan feel to it, but just, I mean, I'm, I'm trying my best to not devolve into Chris Farley. Like, Remember that time when you guys did? <laughs> you that was so one. cool. <laughs> like, for instance, there's there's a video on YouTube where, first of all, you start with Overture from Tommy, which is just phenomenal. It's like, whoa, you guys were at Hideout, and you do Overture from Tommy. <laughs> Miami Rap, which for those who haven't heard the song, is sung from the point of view of somebody who's young, cocky, and trying to, I'm guessing, pick up a girl. into Mancho, which is a very ironically titled song with a very vulnerable lyric about a guy who's opening his heart out to somebody and being as vulnerable as possible. of Miami rap to macho is just wonderful <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't know how much of that was planned or contrived but it's such a cool I, you know I think for them and that was a, even a thing like well they're in the same key so we can kind of they're easy to conjoin uh, and that became a thing we, we may even still periodically play them as a Please, pair I wish you would yeah because um, <laughs> it's not broken I guess yeah the, I mean the balance is just I think a built in feature the light and shade or whatever yeah you know. it's like you take this false bravado and then you marry it with this song of just almost achingly Chris Bell confessional style vulnerability and then you call it macho which I think is hilarious but no that was you know and 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 that was yeah right this we had the song and it was that point like we were young we wrote rock songs so to speak and everything had a bit of sounded hormonal for lack of a better word and then that one you know we had this sort of slow and it's you know there's like no gain on the guitar and everyone's it's quiet and uh you know write vulnerable lyric and 
And I'm certain it was Joe Camarillo um, mm-hmm. who said, why don't you call it Macho? And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. And we laughed about it for about a week. Never called it anything else. You know? <laughs> So I have to compliment you on transmission because it's not part of, well, it's part of your singles. It's like one of those songs like Hey Jude or, or you know, like a, a standalone single like Relay by The Who where it, it isn't part of a full length. Right. And the cool thing about transmission is this is the way I see it. And you can tell me if I'm in the right neighborhood or whatever. The song transmission, there's a Joy Division song that shares the same name. I don't know if there was any connection there. Not that I can recall or that I have any uh, sense of, but it certainly I always always love Joy Division. Right. But then inside of it, when you get to the, the middle eight, I guess, section, you start with a quote from the Carpenters, uh, we've only just begun. Yes. And yes. then you go right into, uh, hold on a second. It's a cheap trick quote. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Fair enough. Don't tell me. Uh, I, I love playing. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. Yeah, yeah. see her face? Oh, he's a whore. There we go. And it's just so cool <laughs> that you go from Carpenters to he's a whore. And that's one thing I wanted to say to you. I Listening to volume one, I, I hear this is the only album that I have in my collection over here that seems to reference both Burt Backrack style complex song arrangements and that My Bloody Valentine almost, I don't want to use punishing sludge, but... But it may apply. Yeah, yeah, I mean, listening to Here She Comes, I I feel like like that My Bloody Valentine almost aesthetic to it. so odd to have both of those on the same record do you, is that intentional is that just hey let's put it in the Cuisinart see what comes out well yeah I think you you know just like yourself I think some people a lot of you know music makers and myself at the time I liked I mean I liked a lot of liked a lot of different things I certainly was I mean that was maybe the peak of my Bacharach infatuation and and similarly, yeah, like really was carrying a torch for my bloody Valentine. And, and naturally, you record all of this music and you start to think, well, you know, you don't, you wouldn't want to have a, I wouldn't, you know, or not at the time, it was going to be our first record. I would have never 
I was very. I remember being very conscious of wanting a certain amount of range on the record. Uh huh. That oh, I you think know, you got that. Yeah. You can have things. Uh, a little bit of things that sort of live in contrast to each other and complement each other and aren't samey. I guess. Yeah. You know, I didn't invent that, and it was probably. You know, I know at the time my point of reference was the White Album. Mm -hmm. Like, well, look, they're going all over the place, and that is part of what makes it satisfying. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, it's fascinating. I hear like Astro Lounge, that early '60s kind of hipster jazz. That sort of musicy kind of space music or whatever. Yeah, I hear little bits and pieces of Sid Barrett era Floyd in there. Maybe not as to the same degree as something like Dukes of Stratosphere, but it's definitely, it, I'm hearing which I'm fascinated. something I will say and I mean it as a compliment but also just kind of a it confounds me listening to Hush Drops records makes me wish I knew more so that I could get all the little bits and pieces and references does that make sense it's like you seem I mean, very literate uh, when it comes to music of spread across the genre you don't seem to say that this and this it's like chocolate and peanut butter why don't they go together oh let's make them go together you know but you'll do that like musically with two things where you normally wouldn't think it would go together but they do oh sure and it doesn't always work but often it does and yeah you know i mean certainly with regard to volume one you know and that was all sort of written in my 20s and recorded mid late 20s early 30s um you know definitely at a stage of I mean, I don't want to say callow, but sort of maybe free enough to, like, you know, kind of pretty blatantly lift things. I mean, you'd mentioned the Carpenter's quote in uh, Transmission, and I, I, you know, I don't know that I would ever that I would ever be able to do something like that now. That I would allow myself <laughs> to do it, uh, but I right. certainly did then. And there was something about the time too that you know I was pretty confident in the view that nobody else was going to like the you know nobody else was going to like the Carpenters. You yeah. Know? So it was almost like just flying the flag for something that I uh, that I was into. Mm-hmm. And how wrong I was, you know. Um, it's funny, you know, all these like. Decades later, you know, in the sort of the Me TV FM era, yeah, that, yeah, uh, exactly. Things that, that I thought were just terminally unhip, and they may be terminally unhip, but they're somehow ubiquitous now. Things like bread and the carpenters, oh, yeah. And yeah. What I mean, there, there is a, a certain level. I mean, it's so tempting to run down that music as AM Gold or whatever and listen to K-Tel Collections, but then you go back and listen, and there's some really good song craft in there. Like, there's a double record K-Tel Collection I inherited, and it has Andrew Gold, Lonely Boy, on there. And I'm going, oh, my God, that's an incredible... I mean, that's one of those epic pop songs. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, it's, it's not fun to say, oh, yeah, I listen to Andrew Gold, but it's there. It, oh, it's, yeah. It's some really well-crafted pop music back when that was a thing. Well, and then you think about Andrew Gold, and like, can you find later you find out, oh, he's all over the sort of like the mid-'70s Linda Ronstadt oh, stuff. Oh, Heart Like a Wheel. It, all that. Yeah, and he's one of the three voices in the harmony blend and all the good, like, the cool guitar stuff and, like, you're no good. Like, oh, that's, that's Andrew and... Uh, 
So yeah, there's uh right. The more we get into, I guess the doc, the age of documentation of hyper documentation. Yeah. Um, all of these links become apparent. Right. So volume one was actually released on a label called Subspace Platform. Explain how did you get in touch with this? Because the gentleman, I guess, is was based in. California. Yeah, that's a friend of ours, a friend of ours to this day, a friend of ours, Jeff Gregory. And he had been in a band called Dollface, who we just loved and love. And So like former Chicagoan? They were a Peoria band. He lived okay. here periodically, but um, he's made all sorts of music in his, in his life. He was in a band called The Bugs that we loved. And periodically he would play with Joe and I, as I mentioned, that we were often not in possession of a bass player um, <laughs> and third singer. The Difference had that problem for a while there, too. They were borrowing Michael from the, the safes. and Yeah, you got to get by. So Jeff was a friend of ours, and Jeff had actually come over to England, and Joe and I had gone out to California and done a show with Jeff as Hush Drops at Spaceland, and he'd come over to England with us later that year and done a series, something like Six Dates in London. I think at some point he had the idea that he wanted to run a label, that he wanted to put out records, and... He liked our album, and there it was. It was already mastered, and uh, yeah. believed in it enough that he made it the. Uh, I think he made it the first, the inaugural release on the label. Yeah. So yeah, so that so that's how that happened. Okay. Yeah. Another amazing highlight from the album, and definitely one of the band's signature songs, is a wonderful song on Volume One called "Kevin Junior," named after the man who's singing on it, and also the lead singer of the chamber strings. Because the way I hear it, it's almost like you have all this stuff, and especially with first CDs, you collect your best bits and pieces, and then you put it out there, keeping in mind that this may be the first and only release that a band releases, and so make it count. I mean, I hear a lot of that there. Would you say that it's almost like a greatest hits, considering that you guys had been a band since the 90s, releasing this in 2003, it's almost like here are our best bits and pieces, put it out there, and hopefully get you a chance for a second album, but knowing that you might not put this out there as our massive grand statement oh yeah yeah right you could always get hit by a truck the next day um there was definitely a uh my feeling at the time was you know if we take our just our best and broadest and most sort of inter complimentary stuff no matter what else happens we'll have done this and and right yeah you you uh you only get to make your first album once and you do have the advantage of drawing from a decade a decade of material and so you know it's very easy to when there's a lot of bands like this groups that i like where i'm I'm now aware that their first record like oh god no wonder they look like geniuses they really (laughs) that was you know a decade of 
I mean, there's a hell of a cutting room floor there if yeah, you, oh yeah, you think totally. about that, you know, um, that they're really able to put their best foot forward in a way that you probably could never, you couldn't do it twice, you know. Because I know Material Issue was like that first, that first album was all killer, no filler for that reason. Yeah. Cheap Tricks' first album was the same way. Even something like Boston. I mean, Bo- he oh, was. Oh God! I mean, that, yeah, that's that album, I mean, huge record for me. Yeah, yeah. And being able to have uh, when you have a band like Cheap Trick, Material Issue, where they had enough left over that wasn't used for those albums to have a killer second album. It's like, oh my God! Oh, well, you're able to you write, kind of keep, <laughs> keep oh, the sure, momentum yeah. going because you have enough songs stockpiled in reserve. You know, it's like, well, hey. It's like here's here's Hello Kitties, but hey, guess what? On the next album, we have So Good to See You, which was you know the, been kicking around since. Oh right, yeah, uh, I mean, maybe even older, yeah. yeah Sick Man yeah. of Europe, yeah. I mean um, stuff like that. I mean it's cool that a, when a band has the momentum to sustain for a second album, and they don't have to clear the decks and start fresh. It's cool when they're able to you know avoid right. the sophomore slump. If you think about. Um, you know, I mean, the era of music that I, most of my listening and most of my favorite things um, are, you know, things from the 60s and 70s. And, you know, as you're aware, people then, big artists, um, small artists alike, like, you know, Grand Funk put out eight albums a year or something like that. Um, <laughs> Grand Funk had excellent packaging. I still have the gold foil. Oh, yeah. American band <laughs> yeah. on yellow vinyl. Oh, man. We, uh, yeah, I, my, we, I, my wife and I, we just went to see Mark Farner um, a week or so ago. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know he's uh, just eternally, he's eternally Mark Farner. Um, <laughs> yeah, he may have been wearing a shirt, but, you know, in my, in my mind he wasn't, you know? <laughs> oh, man, that, that inner spread. Certainly inner saying like he wasn't wearing a shirt. Yep, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, God bless him. He, they can still make it happen this this far along, right on. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's interesting. That, you know, they, these people like David Bowie or Stevie Wonder, where you actually look at the chronology and, like, oh, man, that was just, like, they were just popping them out one after the other, Alice Cooper, whomever. Yeah. Um, Stevie had a, an incredible run there from, I guess, uh, Music of My Mind. Uh, what, what was the, I think it was... That's the first one with the Tonto guys. Yeah, the synthesizer. Yeah, right. but he, I think it was from the, that run between Music of My Mind all through to uh, Songs of the Key of Life was just un- unimpeachable. I mean, those are... Yeah, and that's, I mean... Fulfilling you know. this first finale is a little tough one for me to get into, but those, I mean, aside from... But has that, its gems, for sure. It, yeah, 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 but that, that run of albums was just... Wow, the man was on fire. Well, and it's amazing to think that, you know, you uh, that a, any creative person, a songwriter, a record maker could sustain a peak at that rate of output. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I mean, how many times, right, the Beach Boys, you know, Beatles, uh, you know, how many times can you go to the well and, you know, pull up a big fish? And uh, it's, it's remarkable to think that uh, that was just, that was the standard at one point. You were just expected to do that. Yeah, sometimes, I mean... I'm trying to think who had a contract like that where it was just the label expected that churn out churn out for somebody like Emmett Rhodes I guess he was recorded for ABC Records and they kept saying you you're contractually bound to turn him out and he's like well, wait a minute you don't realize something like that his first self-titled album he did that all himself recorded it at home and it took forever and for him to have to be expected to keep you know, who's going to write the songs? Yeah, right. Um, it took its toll, you know, on him. Yeah, and you know, and you you uh, you notice, I think, by the time that you're even into 
by the time you're into the mid-1980s or whatever, suddenly, you know, it's an album every two years, every three years from people. And, you know, now I think people, you know, like the idea that, no, we could probably milk this album for five years and, you know, we don't need a record from you. <laughs> but that kind of mentality of let it breathe a little it was not the way of the world back in the late 70s. No, no. You, you know, one of the things I noticed, you were talking about people having sort of spare parts going into their career, you know, from the first album. The Rolling Stones do it all the time. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that happens is that you have whatever your cutting room floor is, you know, at some point you're a year or so down the road and, you know, or further. And like, you know what, actually, that old thing that we thought was subpar, like that's that's actually kind of kicking or maybe you're able to like you find the missing puzzle piece for it yeah, the thing yeah. that makes it pop and i know in our work that's been consistently a thing where something that just got shoved aside for whatever reason you know as much as a decade later or more suddenly like oh yeah you know what i, mean, I think i like this thing or it's repurposed in some way that I, I think I know which one you're referring to. I mean, there's a lot of them. Right, but the one that, that I remember myself saying to you at one point was, You'll Never Make It to Mars, was this incredible song. And at the time, it was a, one of those cutting room floor songs that you eventually released pretty much, it sounds like, as is, oh, for yeah. the second album. No, you're not. Oh yeah, it had already been mixed for the first album, and just when we were putting the second album together, like, well, this is as great as anything, and you know, and then you think, well, the way you end up with a cutting room floor is just like, well, we've got, you know, this much room on a record, and there's some balance that you're striking, and you know, maybe whatever the casualties of that are, they're undeserved casualties. Yeah, you know. Um, now, who wrote Mars? Was that? Did I wrote Mars, okay. yeah. Because the vocal is by Joe. Oh, Joe sings it. Yeah, I, it, it very clearly, I remember the writing of it and just thinking like, yeah, no, this is for Joe's voice. This is, he could, he could, he could take this where it needs to go. And, you know, I mean, it's right. It's like, I mean, you get that. I guess you get that in a lot of groups where uh, maybe Brian writes the song, but Carl sings it, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Utopia did that a lot. Like I was reading the liner notes for those last two Utopia albums. You would hear a song that was sung like by Kasim and then it was ended up being written by Todd or you know, and, yeah. and cases like that. Or Willie would sing a, a Todd song or something. Oh right. Just the idea that like, you know what, actually I think it's gonna be better if you sing it. Yeah. You know? It's like I don't think this is right for me to sing. Here you sing yeah. it. Okay. Oh sure, right. Yeah. It's like casting a movie or something. Yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna take a short break. We'll be right back. There you go, folks. That was part one of the Famous Cat Chronicle profile on the Hush Drops. Tune in, folks, for future episodes, including part two of the Hush Drops profile, where the band releases the triumphant double album tomorrow and has to deal with almost breaking up. And we're going to find out what they've been up to with the coronavirus outbreak. They, like every other band, have had to deal with it just as we all have. 
Stay tuned for the mini-episodes, including insight into John San Juan's time with material issue. Nobody can save us but It was a lesson for me in what it actually means to, you know, be a hired hand and maybe the fact that one should be, you know, in that capacity, one probably should be a little more pliant. Or you can hear how John San Juan spent time in the band Ness. Pushing out in a way that was uh, you know, certainly unique in my musical life. And of course, you don't want to miss the episode about John San Juan's time working with the Webb brothers making their wonderful album Maroon. I can't believe major label experience and and that was really kind of the end of an era too kind of i think right before the bottom dropped out it's all here on the famous cat chronicle expect the episodes to be coming more quickly now but you know i can't promise anything i just promise you the best podcast there is until then thanks a lot for listening this has been the famous cat chronicle and i'm thomas Durkin. see you next time one two three four That one might be the keeper.